Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, so Genesis chapter 7 today. Genesis chapter 7. Last week... You'll see on the board that I've written a, a lot of the stuff that we went over last week. And you remember, if you were here, kind of this this summary of the events with Noah and the flood and how it all worked out and how it all came down. And so you can kind of summarize this, this event with these passages here. So making reference to the board here, chapter 6, verse 5, God sees the depth and extent of wickedness. And if you wanted to, you could look at these verses, obviously, and you'd be able to see what I'm referring to, how those passages actually support these ideas. Chapter 6, verse 7, God determines global worldwide judgment. So this is all a summary of Noah, the time of Noah, all right, the flood account. Chapter 6, verse 8, God's people find grace in his eyes. Chapter 6, verse 13, God warns his followers of approaching judgment. Chapter 6, verse 14, God gives his people a big job to do before his judgment arrives. Verse 15, God guides his followers in how to do the job. Verse 18, God promises blessings and salvation. Verse 20, God does the impossible. Verse 21, God leaves the possible for his followers to do. Verse 22, God's followers obey. Chapter 7, verse 6, God's followers persevere. Verse 12, God's followers maintain their trust. Verse 13, God's followers wait inside the place of protection, the ark in this case. And then chapter 7, verse 16, God secures, seals, covers, and guards his followers as his judgment is unleashed. And that's obviously the passage where it says God shut the door. Okay, So this is a summary, you'll remember from last week, of Noah and the time of the flood. But you'll remember from last week's study, can we take this and maybe look at it as a model for what's going on with us in the here and now? And I think we can. If you look at it, it seems to fit. And you remember from last week, we looked at this. Does God see the depth and extent of wickedness in our day? Absolutely. Nothing escapes his attention. Verse 7, does God determine global worldwide judgment? Yeah, yeah, he does. Mm -hmm. That's coming. Verse 8, God's people find grace in his eyes. He could just decide, as he could have in the days of Noah, you know, I'm just going to kill everyone. I'm just going to kill everyone. But his people find grace in his eyes. Verse 13, God warns his followers of approaching judgment. Have we been warned of approaching judgment? We are. We have God's word. God gives his people a big job to do before his judgment arrives. If we are his people, and if this model fits, we have a big job to do. What is the big job that we have to do? I want to pause here for a second then and look at this big job. Matthew. Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 28, the last chapter of the entire book. And I want to tandem this. This is going to be Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. This one with the next one, all right? So a big job to do. God gives his people a big job to do before his judgment arrives. God guides his followers in how to do the job. For Noah, that was build the ark. That was a big job. And how to do it? God gave him the dimensions and said, this is how you're going to do it. For God speaking to us then, if this has a modern day application, what is it for us? Verses 19 and 20. What's our big job? Go and make disciples. That's our big job. Go and make disciples. How are we supposed to do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. That's our big job and how to do it. 
So while Noah is dedicating each day of his life, swinging a hammer, moving a saw, we would have a big job to do too. What is it? It's to go and make disciples. Let that sink in a little bit. (laughs) Go and make disciples. Mm -hmm. That's our big job to do. And how do we do it? We teach them. We go over God's word. We look in God's word, teaching them all the things that he's commanded. Verse 18, God promises blessing and salvation. Do we have blessings, promises of blessings and salvation? We do. God's word would declare that as well. God does the impossible. Does he still do the impossible? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he requires us, he expects us to do the possible. I'm trying to model this with my kids. A lot of times my kids will ask me, Dad, will you do this for me? Dad, will you do that for me? You know what? If I think they can't do it, I'm going to jump in and do it. If I think they can, I'm going to let them do it. Because I'm trying to teach them. I'm trying to model this relationship between God and us. That relationship being God saying to us, our Heavenly Father saying to us, if you can't handle it, if you can't do it, I'll take care of it. But if you can, I'm going to let you do it. Ah, so then we have something we got to do. We don't get to go through life just sitting in an easy chair, the spiritual easy chair, and thinking God's got it all. He's going to just take care of it all. No, he leaves the possible for us to do. He expects us to participate in this process. He'll take care of the impossible. Verse 22, 622, God's followers obey. That should be the model for us too. Just as Noah was obedient, we should be obedient. God's followers persevere. What does persevere mean? Stick it out. Stick it out. We're called to be Christians, not for this year. We're called to be Christians, followers of Christ, for the long term. This is a till death do us part type of decision. All right? God's followers maintain their trust, kind of along the same lines as the persevere. 13, God's followers wait inside the place of protection. Noah and his family, they were instructed to wait inside the place of protection. That was the ark. Where is the place of protection for us? John 15, Jesus' own words, he says, abide in me. The place of protection is in Christ. We step outside of the umbrella of Christ, we step outside of the umbrella of his protection. The place that we need to abide, abide in him, to wait in that place of protection. And then verse 16, and God secures, seals, covers, and guards his followers as his judgment is unleashed. That God secures us, seals us, covers us, and guards us. What would be a good verse for that? How about John chapter 10, verses 28 29? No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's pretty good security. Garden covered. All right. So that's just a recap of last week, what we were looking at last week. Going back then to Genesis chapter 7. Chapter 7, we're going to be starting then with verse 17. Verse 17, now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters increased. That word there for waters appears five times in this uh, section, section 17 through 20. The word increase shows up two times. The word for rose shows up three times. And the word for greatly shows up three times. Basically, in these verses, verses 17, 18, 19, and 20, there's only 47 total Hebrew words in those four verses. 28% of those are these words. They show up over and over and over again. So these words uh, carry with it. 28% of the strength of this passage is in these, these very words. When it says there at the end of verse 17, high above the earth, 
Remember last week I mentioned global language? I used that term, that phrase global language, in describing that the words that are being chosen by the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, these words are conveying to us that this was a global flood, okay? And so here's what I would say is some more support for that. More global language. When it says high above the earth, that seems like it's not talking about a local flood. <laughs> I mean, just the clear reading of the text it makes it sound like it's more of a global situation. So here we have global language, high above the earth. Dr. Kent Hovind ended up saying one time about this passage, he says, there's enough water in the oceans right now to cover the earth 8,000 feet deep if the surface of the earth were smooth. So if you were able to take all the mountains, squish them down, all right, <laughs> all right, and the seafloor, bring it up, it, then if you had a layer of water, you would have a layer of water 8,000 feet deep above that layer of dirt and earth and land. 8,000 feet. That's pretty neat. Could it be that our mountains were lower than they are today? That's a possibility. Here's one of the things I would suggest to you. Mount Everest, right? The highest mountain on Earth. Mount Everest, 29,000 and some change. 29,000 feet tall. The last 3,000 feet of it, from 26,000 to 29,000, it's covered in sedimentary rock. What do you know about sedimentary rock? Layers. It's layers, okay. What else do you know about it? It's placed there. Deposited. Deposited, thank you. It's flowing into place, typically. What else do you know about sedimentary rock? Is it typically rock you would expect to find on the top of the highest mountain on the Earth? No, no. it's underneath the ocean. <laughs> sedimentary rock is an under-the-oceans type of rock. It's underwater type of rock. And yet, you have the top 3,000 feet of the highest mountain on the Earth being sedimentary rock. What does that say? Well, either the flood was above Mount Everest, or Mount Everest was lower. <laughs> okay, Either one, it suggests that there was something huge to deposit 3,000 feet of sedimentary rock on what we now have as the highest mountain on the Earth. Kind of cool. Some of the other interesting stuff about the sedimentary rock, all over the world, and including this 3,000-foot layer at the top of Mount Everest, are fossils of sea life. Fossils of sea life, including clams. Closed. What's the significance about a clam being closed? Still alive. It was still alive when it was buried because a clam is a muscle. And when a clam dies and that muscle dies, it opens. And when you find clamshells, you usually find one. Sometimes you'll find two connected and they're open. But you don't find dead clams still closed unless they're buried rapidly. And so to find closed clams in the sedimentary rock on the top of the highest mountain on the earth, they were buried quickly. Whether that mountain was lower or whether the water was up high, it speaks strongly of a global flood. Pretty cool. All right, moving on from there. Verse 18. The waters prevailed. The waters prevailed. That word that's translated prevailed there shows up four times in this 17, 18, 19, 20, and verse 24. It's a word that we derive other words from that are uh, translated as strong or to be mighty, and also numerous other words for strength or might or power. All right, so here we have a picture being painted of this water prevailing in a powerful way. All right, the water's prevailing powerfully. Verse 19, And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, more global language, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered, more global language. One of the interesting things here, Matthew Henry's commentary, Matthew Henry ends up saying, There is no place on earth so high as to set men out of reach of God's judgments. God's hand will find out all his enemies. Then he references Psalm 21, 8. 
So even though the waters covered all the high hills, is there a place for the wicked to find refuge? No, not anymore. Their opportunity has passed. And God's judgment finds them. Even if they were to climb above the flood waters rising, they're going to run out of mountain top pretty soon. Genesis chapter 7, verse 20, the waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the mountains were covered. So if you've got water 15 cubits above, whatever mountain was the highest mountain at that time, how tall was the ark? Do you remember how tall the ark was? in cubits. If you need a reference, 15. chapter 6, verse 15. What was that? 50 cubits? 50? No, it was 30 cubits. 30 cubits. So here we have the ark is able to rest with the water line halfway up the ark and still be fine. Even if it happened to pass by the tallest mountain underneath. Because <laughs> if it's 15 cubits above the mountain, your ark's not even in danger of scraping that tallest mountain wherever it might be. Unless it's you know, sinking way down more than halfway into the water. So uh, it's kind of neat, that little detail there. By the way, there's more global language there. If you see that, the mountains were covered. More global language. Hmm, have you noticed the pattern? Every single verse we've looked at has this global language. Another thing indicated right here, Dr. Kent Hovind says, the large mountains as we have them today did not exist until after the flood. And he uses as a reference, he says, Psalm 104 and then I'm going to say specifically verse 8. Let's look at Psalm 104, verse 8. What does it say there? Now, granted, when we're looking at this psalm, you remember, is uh, the book of Psalms is a book of poetry. So you've got to realize you're reading poetic language, but in the midst of this poetic language, you have this interesting passage. Somebody mind reading that. Psalm 104, verse 8. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. There you go. Suggesting that the mountains rose and the valleys sank down. That maybe there was a shifting... Mountains rising up, valleys sinking down, and that the contour of the earth now is much more exaggerated and jagged than maybe it was at the time of Noah. Does this prove it? No, it doesn't prove it. But he proposes it as an idea to consider, and maybe it was. Maybe that Mount Everest wasn't as high as it is today. Maybe it was lower. It seems to have some sedimentary rock on it, so that suggests it was underwater at some point. You know. So just for your consideration or your contemplation. Genesis chapter 7, verse 21 and all, there's global language again, all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every, more global language, creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every, more global language, every man. Chapter 7, verse 22, all, there it is again, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. Verse 23, so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. More global language there. Verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth. More global language. Prevailed on the earth 150 days. Why am I belaboring this point about the global language? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, near the end of your New Testament. Verses 3 through 14. That's a lot of verses, so we're not going to obviously be able to do a word-for-word study here, but we're going to go through it pretty quickly. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 14. Peter says this, Knowing this verse, that scoffers will come in the last days. Why am I emphasizing the global language part? Because of the scoffers that come in the last days. All right? Knowing this verse, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, verse 4, and saying... Where is the promise of his coming? <coughs> you ever have anybody that says that? Hey, you know, I want to let you know Jesus is coming again. Oh, really? I've heard that before. Where is this promise of him coming? 
what would they say in objection to that? They say, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So what are they referring to? They're saying yesterday and the day before that and the day before that, they were all the same. I expect tomorrow's going to be the same and next week's going to be the same. That's what your scoffer is going to say when you say Jesus is coming again. All right. So their objection is, ah, you know what? Everything just keeps going on the way it's been going on. But Peter warns us, he says in verse 5, and he refers to the creation, he says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, that's the creation, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, referring to the creation, verse 6, referring to the flood, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So the flood and the creation, Peter is saying, these people who make an objection to Jesus coming back again, the second coming, they're mocking and scoffing, and they're saying, really? Really, you're telling me Jesus is coming again? Really? You know what? Here's what I see. I see every day it's looking the same to me. You know, all my life I haven't seen anything grand that's been going on, and I don't expect it to be any different in the future. And Peter says, they're willfully forgetting the creation and the flood. They're willfully forgetting the creation and the flood. They're turning their back on those two great events. Verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition or destruction in the NIV or RSV. The perdition of ungodly men. So the scoffers and the mockers are saying, I'm not going for that. I'm not buying it. Jesus is coming again. Mm -mm, I'm not going to buy it. But Peter's saying there's a day coming where destruction's on the way. Destruction's on the way. Was there destruction at the time of Noah? Were there people who thought it was going to be life as usual? Yeah, Jesus said that was life as usual for them. Took them by surprise. He said that's going to be the same way for the second coming as well. It's going to take the people by surprise, the ones that are not paying attention. So that the scoffers are able to say, I don't believe it. But Peter's saying they have to ignore the creation and they have to ignore the flood to come to that conclusion. Verse 8. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You remember we talked about the timing of the flood. And you remember that when we looked at the godly line of Seth, and you had Methuselah, the longest living guy of anyone, 969 years. He ends up living longer than any other person, and in the year of his death is the year of the flood. And it almost suggests that maybe the reason God had this person live to be as old as he lived to be was maybe God was being patient and long-suffering and providing people the opportunity, repent. The day's coming when I'm going to come and judge the whole world. Maybe that long-suffering when he was dealing with Noah and say, build yourself an ark, and however many years it was that he had warning, 80 years, 100 years, 120 years, People had a chance. Repent. And I'm sure people were saying at that time, you know what? I'm not seeing it happening. Looks like just another day to me. I bet his neighbors woke up and look out the window every day and go, well, guess he's wrong again. I don't see any clouds in the sky. Just as modern day scoffers might say, hmm, where's the promise of his coming? And they're willfully ignoring that God's already followed through on every promise he's made so far. By the way, there in verse 7, it tells us that the destruction of the earth that's coming, the judgment that's coming, that we're in our position on the timeline looking forward to, it won't be by water. What's it going to be by? Fire. Fire. <laughs> yeah, fire. I'd almost rather have the water. But either way, if you're a sinner, you're dead. All right. And then verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. I have some encouraging news for you. If you're a follower of Christ, 
it won't overtake you as a thief. Paul encourages us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, that it won't take us by surprise. It will take by surprise the people who aren't looking for it, the scoffers. So for the scoffers, that day will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He's going to use here Noah then as our example of the way we should behave in waiting for this time. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with the fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him, as Noah, in peace, without spot, and blameless. Just as Noah was found to be righteous in the Lord's eyes, so we too should have him as a model of the conduct and the behavior that we should be exhibiting while we're waiting for the second coming. All right, going back then to Genesis chapter 7. So why was I belaboring the point about more global language? The reason I was belaboring that point and showing that every single verse clearly teaches, the plain teaching, is that it was a global flood. Well, it's because you're going to run into scoffers and doubters who would say, you believe the flood? Wait a minute, you believe in Noah's flood? It's fine here on a Tuesday during lunch to be able to talk about it with our friends, our Christian friends, and say, yeah, I believe in the flood. Oh, yeah, I do too. But when you go out with unbelievers and you talk about Noah's flood, oh, hello, it's going to be a different reaction. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because I was having this discussion with one of the girls that goes to our congregation who's at, you know, a college at university. And this guy that she's friends with who is a total atheist, and those are exactly the two things she was telling me about. He was saying, do you really believe in a creation? There was no creation. And you really believe in a flood? There was no flood. Those are the exact two things that he was mm. scoffing. Real about. life examples, right exactly. out of the book of Second exactly. Peter. <laughs> I told her, look at that. Look at that passage. So for us, what are we supposed to believe about the creation? What are we supposed to be believing about the flood? It's right here. God would say, do you take me at my word or not? Do you believe what I say or not? And we've got other voices that go, no, come on, there's got to be some way around it. There's got to be some loophole. Really, we could do this creation thing. We could spread it out over a long period of time. You don't have to believe that it was actual. Just a local flood, and it was just a heavy rain, and a riverbanks overflowed, and the next thing you know, Noah on his little barge with four animals ends up out in the delta somewhere. You know, No, that's not the plain teaching of the Bible. This is not a local flood. A local flood, as I said before, a local flood does not address a global problem. If your global problem is global wickedness, you need a global flood to solve it. A local flood doesn't do it. It's because wickedness had spread throughout the earth that the flood had to spread throughout the earth. All right? So that's why I belabor it. Because there are people that would say that's ridiculous. And I want you to remember this day, this study, this passage. I nail my foundation on this. That God's word, I trust God's word, what it says. And I understand what it says. And the plain meaning of the text is global flood. Not a local flood. Why would people object to a global flood? It comes down to this. It's a God that judges sin. And if you want to live your life without God judging you for your sin, then you believing in a global flood is a little bit of a problem. You have to subscribe to something other than that. If you want to live your life in sin and you don't want God to judge you, you've got to believe that the flood was not actually God judging the world. That really this is just a fanciful story and a myth. It was just a river that overflowed its banks. No, I'm sorry, that's not left to us as an option. All right, moving on for there. 
chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Genesis chapter 8. Somebody mind reading the first four words there? Then God remembered Noah. Then God remembered Noah. This is the turning point of the entire flood account. Then God remembered Noah. Does that mean that God forgot about Noah until this point? Does that mean he went, oh, rats, I forgot about Noah, and now I remember. Is that what it means? No, no, that's not what it means. Those words in English are from a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word, it's zakar, or zakar. 73 times it shows up with God as the subject, all right, so as God doing the remembering. So 73 times in our Old Testament, God shows up remembering various people. And most of those occasions, it carries with it the idea of action, okay? That remembering, when it shows up in that context, isn't up here in the head. You and I, when we remember something, we remember it with our mind. In the way that it's being used here, it's not remembering with the mind, it's remembering with the hands. Why do I say hands? I'm using it as an illustration. It's God extending. It's God doing something. It's God about to do something big. When you run across in your Old Testament, God remembering, stand by, because something big's about to happen. Something big's about to happen. In this situation, what's the big thing that's about to happen? Saving Noah and his family. Saving Noah and his family. This is the big thing that's about to happen is we're going to get rid of this water. We're going to end this. The flood account, the worst is over. And God now, remembering Noah, is going to push those waters away. He's going to push those waters back where they belong. All right. So what's God doing? What is he doing in most of the context? Instead of remembering with the head, he's remembering with the hand. What is he extending to us? Somebody mind looking up chapter 9, verse 15. Who wants that one? We've got, I've got six of these here, so I'm going to need some help. All right, Steve's got chapter 9, verse 15. How about 1929? Genesis 1929. Who wants that one? Thank you. Who wants chapter 30, verse 22? I'll take that. Excellent. Mike's got 30, 22. Who wants Exodus 224? I do. All right, Esther's got Exodus 2.24. Who wants Exodus 32.13? I'll take that. All right, thank you. And the last one, Psalm 25, 6 through 7. Psalm 25, 6. Look at the, they're looking at each other across the table. <laughs> Look, he resisted. and <laughs> Sherry's going to beat you up on the way out now. <laughs> All right, Sherry's got it, Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7. All right, who has 9.15? Somebody mind reading that one. And I will remember my covenant that exists between me and you and every living creature of every kind of flesh. Never again shall the waters become a flood to destroy all flesh. So we have here at the end of the flood account, chapter 9, verse 15, God extending, God remembering, God remembering, and what is he extending? He's extending mercy. Okay? Let's look at 1929. Who has that one? Bianca? And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Excellent. What were those cities' names? Anybody remember? Sodom and Gomorrah. So the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But when God remembers Abraham and Lot, what is he doing? He's extending mercy to them. All right. How about 3022? Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. Oh, do you know this story? Rachel and Leah. Leah was the wife that wasn't loved and Rachel was the wife that was loved. Who ends up having the children? Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. She ends up giving birth to the first batch of baby boys. And then Rachel's like, ah, oh, I need kids. And then the next two are by her handmaiden. And then the next two are by the maiden of Leah. And then what ends up happening? Finally, Rachel. God remembering Rachel. Extending to her what? Mercy. Mm-hmm. Mercy to her. Exodus 2.24. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Extending mercy to them. 
32.13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So here we have Moses using those same words to say, remember God? Remember how you remembered us? <laughs> and he's saying what? Show us mercy. Show us mercy. Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. Did you hear that in two places? Mercy. Verse 6 has mercy. Verse 7 has mercy. So what is it when God remembers? When God remembers, it's not with the mind. When God remembers, it's action and something big is about to happen. And when God remembers and something big is about to happen, what is it? He's extending mercy to his followers, to his people. So it's either referring back to mercy that was shown them, or it's referring to mercy that's about to be extended to them. So when it says here in chapter 7, verse 1, God remembered Noah, you're about to see something big happen. Something big and merciful happening. The next phrase of that verse there, it says, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing. God remembered Noah and every living thing. One of the commentaries I read pointed out this. He says, A beautiful illustration of Matthew 10.29. Matthew 10.29 is that verse that says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. God paying attention to two sparrows. Here we have God paying attention, God remembering the animals as well as Noah. The next part of that verse ends up saying, And God made a wind. God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The word for wind there, we've run into this before. The word for wind there is ruach. Ruach. And we see it, the most one of the most famous verses that has this, and the first verse that it shows up in, is chapter 1, verse 2. What does it say over there in chapter 1, verse 2? The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Where's the wind? Ruach can be translated as wind or as spirit. The same word. So here we have in chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God. And what is the Spirit of God doing? Hovering over the waters. Being in control of the chaotic waters, right? Here we flip over to chapter 7, and we see that what is the Spirit, what is the wind doing over here? God is commissioning the Ruach to be in control of the waters. This is not accidental. Clearly this seems to be intentional, either by the Spirit or by Moses, right? In penning these words. This is a correlation, joining once again the creation account and the flood account together. So just as you had in the creation account, the Spirit hovering over the waters, being in charge, being in control of the waters, you have God now commissioning the Ruach to be in charge, to be in control of the waters here in the Genesis chapter 7 and the flood account. Alright? Moving on from there... By the way, this wind or this ruach shows up in other places that are kind of neat to look at. You see that the ruach or the wind is the wind that was used to chase away the locust plague during the Exodus account. You have the ruach is also what was called upon to separate the waters in the crossing of the sea. And then the ruach brings the waters back, floods and drowns the Egyptian army. You have the ruach that brings in the quail when the people were wandering in the wilderness. And then you also find several places in our Old Testament where this Ruach shows up and does God's bidding in protecting his people. So kind of cool. 
Chapter 8, verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. If you remember from chapter 7, verse 11, somebody read 7-11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. The fountain of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. The broken up and and the opened now finds its counterpart where they are stopped and sealed or stopped and restrained. Verse 3, And the waters receded continually. Receded continually. One of the translations says little by little. The waters receded little by little or continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. You know, it says also in chapter 8, verse 4, if you look at this one, Then the ark rested in the seventh month and the seventeenth day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. If you compare this verse with chapter 7, verse 11, you find this is five months after the floodwaters started. Five months after the floodwaters started, the ark comes to rest. Is the flood story over? It's not. It ends up going longer than a year. So the, the ark comes to rest five months after the waters burst forth. But it still takes seven more months to complete the waters going away part of it. We'll find out later. The whole account takes a year. So what does that mean? It takes a lot longer for the water to go away than for the water to come upon them. All right? Why am I saying that? Well, consider how long it took for the floodwaters to dissipate, for the floodwaters to be put back in their place. That it was probably a very slow and gradual process when that happened. And it was probably such that you might find it almost imperceptible. If you were to wake up, if you were to look out your window of your ark and see those waters, it might not look much different than the day before. But Noah trusted God and realized that this is all happening. It's just happening slower than maybe he preferred it to happen. That the waters are moving away. I want you to think in your life and consider what's flooding your life. Consider the floodwaters in your own life. Maybe you're experiencing a financial flood of the bad sort. Maybe your floodwaters are emotional. Maybe you feel like you're drowning in physical or spiritual floodwaters. Maybe there's a reputational flood. Maybe you're adrift in a flood of conflict or sorrow or loneliness or hurt or failure or condemnation or rejection. Whatever flood you find yourself in, God hasn't forgotten you. And just as God remembered Noah, God remembers you. We need to persevere just like Noah did. We need to hold on. We need to trust God, realizing that God sees our situation. God knows our predicament. And as was the case with Noah, God remembers us. And what does it mean when he remembers us? It's not that he forgot us before. It's not a remembering with the head, it's a remembering with the hand. And what is he extending to us? When he remembers us, he's extending to us mercy. Be still and know that he is God. Wait upon the Lord and he will send his spirit to drive away your floodwaters. It won't be dramatic. It's not going to be instantaneous. There may be days that you might think this doesn't look much different than it did the day before. But over time, you're going to see a change. And eventually you're going to be able to look out and see that God has brought you to a place of a completely new beginning. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the patterns that you have for us in your word. 
we thank you, Lord, that your character shows up. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. Your character shows through that you're unchanging, that you are consistently long-suffering and patient with us, and that your love for us, well, we can't even plumb the depths of that. Help us, Lord, to rest in you. Help us, Lord, to be built up in you. Help us to abide in you. Help us, Lord, to do the big job you want us to do. And thank you for the plans that you've given us on how to do it. And thank you for securing and covering us till the very end. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.